Would you open up your Bibles to the last chapter of John, John 21, and in your books we're on lesson 192, Feed and Follow. If you put that together with what we had last week, fish, feed, follow. Kind of neat, huh? Fish, feed, follow. Let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time together, okay? Would you bow with me? Thank you, Father God, for your living, breathing word that we are all so privileged to have a copy of in our hands, especially when we think of the billions upon billions of people since the beginning of history who have not shared that privilege. And so how much more accountable are we to know it and to sow it and to show it in our lives and to grow in it. Today we ask again that that your spirit would use it and make it sharp that it might truly reach deep into our spirits and accomplish whatever is necessary to make us able to love you as we ought with unconditional, sacrificial, agape kind of love. We thank you that you do indeed know our hearts and you can see our love even though we fail and sometimes doubt and even like Peter sometimes deny that you know us better than we know ourselves and so we ask that you would move upon our consciences so that we would each do an honest self-examination and confess anything that has entered into our hearts that might now prevent us from being in true fellowship with you, not only today, but every day of the remainder of our lives. Well, we do pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In our look at the first 14 verses of John 21 last week and the circumstances surrounding the Lord's only, one and only, post-resurrection normal miracle, Right? Normal miracle. Of course, his ascension is going to be another miracle, and everything he did with his body appearing and disappearing. Those were miracles, but I'm talking about the catch of 153 fish. That's his only normal miracle post-resurrection. And we learned that one of our great responsibilities in this age, the church age, as believers, is to be fishers of men. We are all responsible to cast out the net of the gospel message into the deep sea of this world and catch fish. Men, women, young people, children were to be evangelists. And now, as we turn to the latter half of John chapter 21, we further learn through the Lord's two conversations with Peter that we are also to be shepherds, under-shepherds. Of course, he, the Lord, is the great shepherd, the good shepherd. We are to be his under-shepherds who feed the Lord's flock. And then in the very last conversation he has with Jesus, uh, Peter when he says, follow me, we are also to be followers of the Lord. We're to be disciple learners of the Lord who focus on following Jesus, not only in our lives, but also in our deaths. We'll be talking about that as well. So I thought about our lives and our responsibilities as believers in this day and age. We have three basic responsibilities. We're to fish for the unsaved. We're to feed the saved, and we're to follow the Savior. That's a very easy way of looking at it, isn't it? 
coming. So that's all I'm going to have for our introduction. Let's look at the restoration of Peter, John 21, looking at verses 15 to 17. And as I read this conversation, it can get kind of confusing with all the he's and him. So I'm just going to go ahead and put the names of who is speaking in there instead of he and him. All right. So let's look at verse 15. So when they had dined, Jesus saith to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? Peter saith unto the Lord, yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. Jesus saith unto Peter, feed my lambs. Jesus saith to Peter again the second time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Peter saith unto the Lord, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. Jesus saith unto Peter, Feed my sheep. Jesus saith unto Peter the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Peter was grieved because he said unto him the third time, Lovest thou me? And Peter said unto the Lord, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. Jesus saith unto Peter, feed my sheep. Well, after the resurrected Lord had taken care of the physical needs of his men by his seven disciples, remember there were seven, uh, by feeding them a breakfast of fish and chips, (laughs) fish and bread, and warming them by the fire of coals that he had made for them, he set out to deal with a very serious matter concerning Peter, Simon Peter, something that needed to be done in the presence of apostolic witnesses. The other six men at this scene all had been present when Jesus had warned Peter of impending danger. Remember when the Lord said to Peter, Simon, Simon. It's bad enough when he calls him Simon once. When he says Simon, Simon twice. You know, that's his unregenerate name. Behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not. You notice, Jesus didn't pray that Peter wouldn't fail. Because it was going to be a good thing for Peter to fail. Because Peter needed some humbling in his life, didn't he? But he did pray that Peter's faith would not fail. And then he went on and he said, And when thou art converted... That doesn't mean when you're saved. That means when you're converted from your pride to humility. Then strengthen thy brethren. The other six men were also there when the Lord predicted Peter's three denials of him after Peter's great boast that he alone would never desert the Lord. You know, the others might desert you, Lord, but not me. And by now, these men had also very likely known that that prediction had been fulfilled, that Peter had indeed denied the Lord three times. So it was important for these foundational leaders of the church that was coming, it was important for them to know that Peter was fully restored to his position as an apostle. Now, he had never ceased to be an apostle, but they needed to know that he was going to continue as one of the chosen apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. And John needed to be included as one of these witnesses of Peter's recommissioning to leadership position as an apostle. Because even though he didn't know it yet, John may have been like 19 to 21 years old or something like that. He doesn't know it yet, 
But in his old age, he is going to be led by the Holy Spirit to record this account for the benefit of every future New Testament believer. We all needed to know that Peter was restored as an apostle. For the Lord's first resurrect, post-resurrection appearance to Peter was a private meeting. We learned about it in Luke 24, 34. We didn't know any of the circumstances, but that was a private meeting with Peter to restore Peter's private fellowship with the Lord. Here now, the Lord's public meeting with Peter, and it wasn't real public because it was only in front of six other men, but we call it public. His public meeting was with Peter restored him to the public ministry of the apostleship. Now, when Jesus turned to Peter with the first of his three love-related questions, the first thing that must have drawn Peter's attention was that he was addressed by his old nature name. And that's not good, you know. (laughs) His old nature name was Simon. Jesus says, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? Did you notice this use of the old nature name is given in all three questions. All three times he calls him Simon, son of Jonas. This is likely done to give Peter the opportunity to counter his three denials of the Lord, which were definitely the work of the old Simon, the old nature man, when he denied the Lord, right? Wouldn't you say that was the old Simon? Surely that fact alone would have caused Peter to reflect seriously on his character flaws. If not immediately, you know, when he heard the Lord ask him these three questions, calling him Simon, son of Jonas, um, if he didn't immediately think of his character flaws, I'm sure later on as he reflected back to this conversation, he would think about that. When when Peter first met the Savior, three years earlier from where we are in our study, Jesus had said to him, you know what the first words to Peter were from Jesus, thou art Simon, the son of Jonah. Not much had changed in Peter's life in three years. (laughs) He's still being called Simon, the son of Jonah. And then he went on to say, thou shalt be called Cephas. Cephas is Aramaic. It's the same meaning as Peter. Peter is Greek, Petros. Both words mean rock. You're Simon, the son of Jonas, you're a son of Adam, you're a son of man, but you will be called rock. Peter hasn't quite gotten to being a rock yet, has he? (laughs) Uh, So far in his history, he has seemed to be anything but a rock, stable and firm. I thought about Peter more as a big, bouncing rubber ball. (laughs) You know, I kind of thought about Tigger, too, (laughs) since we're in Pooh characters, but just, you know, bouncing all over the place, just like a big ball. But I don't think that he had seen himself that way. He had seen himself as the strongest of all of them. And he probably was physically because he did haul in that net full of 153 fish single-handedly. So he probably was the biggest. Um, But I don't think he was the strongest spiritually, or at least I hope not. (laughs) So the Lord, in effect, was asking him, Simon, son of Jonas, No wonder Peter had problems. His father was Jonah. (laughs) That's a joke. (laughs) He's saying, Simon, son of man, you know, descendant of Adam with the inherited sin nature. 
Before I send you forth, commissioning you for the tremendous task that I have for you as a son of God, I need to ask you a question. Do you love me more than these? What does the Lord want more than anything from us? He wants our heart, doesn't he? He wants our love. Excuse me. Only a few weeks before this, probably a couple weeks, two, three weeks, Peter had boasted of his tremendous love for the Lord when he said, Lord, I will lay down my life for thy sake. That was John 13, 37, right before the Last Supper. And then he not only proudly contrasted his rock, firm, solid stand for the Lord with the other disciples when he said, you know, I can see how they'd all leave you, but I won't. But do you know that he actually compared his love and his devotion to the Lord with every single person under the sun? Is that a little not exaggerating? Is that a lot not a little bit proud? Do you know what his words were? Listen, these are Peter's words. Though all men shall be offended because of thee, yet will I never be offended. Ooh, he did need to be taken down a notch or two, didn't he? And then he even contradicted the Lord's own prediction of his denials that very night. And the Lord said, you know, Peter, ooh, ooh, be careful what you're saying before the, the, the cock crows three times. You're going to deny me three times. And Peter said, though I should die with thee, yet will I not deny thee. Now, as we mentioned last week, Peter always seemed to be trying to outdo everyone else, right? That was just Peter. Whether consciously or unconsciously, that was Peter. He was always out in front doing something spectacular, gaining all of the attention, and uh, rather oblivious to the fact that sometimes he was being used as a, a pawn in Satan's hands. Remember when Jesus had to say, Get thee behind me, Satan? He said that to Peter. Whoa, I'd rather be called Simon any day than Satan. Sometimes he was kind of oblivious to the fact that what he was doing was endangering the others, as when he took out that dagger, a little dagger, and chopped off an ear in Gethsemane. And he certainly was not very sensitive about the feelings of others when he said, yeah, you know, I can understand these guys falling and failing, and but not me. How do, how do those guys feel about it? He wasn't very sensitive about that. Or was he very sensitive about leaving them with a bigger share of the ministry work? as when he had just jumped out of the boat and let them bring in the boats and the net and all the fish. So, Peter did need some humbling. And at this point, I could spend a lot of time discussing what Jesus meant when he asked Simon if he loved him more than these. There's a lot of debate about, did he was he asking Peter if he loved him more than, Then Peter loved Thomas and Nathaniel and James and John and the other two unnamed disciples. Did Peter love Jesus more than he loved the other guys? Some say, was he asking Peter if he loved him more than the boats and the fish and the nets, you know, the fishing business? But if we discuss that, that would be a waste of time because there is no doubt whatsoever that Peter loved Jesus more than he loved the other guys and more than he loved the fishing business. Hadn't he just proven that when he unhesitatingly jumped out of the boat 
and left the other guys behind and left the fishing boat and the fishing business behind? Why? To get to Jesus? There's no doubt that he loved Jesus more than the other men and more than the fishing business. What the Lord was asking in the presence of the other men was if Peter truly loved, loved him more than the other men loved him. Because Peter thought his love was supreme. He loved Jesus more than they did. So that's what he means when he says, do you love me more than these guys love me? All right, now Peter here was being intentionally forced by the Lord to mentally think through, to think over all of his past bragging statements and his actions and how his pride and his competitive nature and his superior attitude had led to his own disgraceful fall, right? He want, you know, what's the thing? I just, pride, pride cometh before a fall. He needed to think all this through. That's what caused him to fall was his pride. The Lord was giving Peter an opportunity to retract his former boasts of superior love for Jesus. Now, in that question, the Lord, the first question, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou more than these? The Lord used the Greek word agapi, agapao, for love. Do you agapi love me more than these? Now, as you probably all know, agapi is the strongest word for love in the Greek language. It's kind of sad that in English we only have one word for love. So you kind of have to think of the context that the person is using the word love. The Greeks are much more specific about it. They have four words for love. Agapao is the word for unconditional, sacrificial love. God's kind of love. Then there is phileo love, which is affectionate, brotherly, sisterly type of love. The city of Philadelphia Adelphos in Greek means brothers. It's the city of brotherly love. Then the Greeks have the word eros, E-R-O-S. That word is never used in the Bible. You know what kind of love that speaks of? Erotic love, sensual love. They also have the word storke, which speaks of natural love, like a mother has for her children. Okay, so they got four words. The Lord here... And he's asking his question of Peter is using agape, the unconditional sacrificial type of love. And Peter, in his answers, always uses phileo. He never says he agape loves the Lord. He uses the word phileo in all three of his answers. You see, Peter was coming to realize the deceitfulness of his own heart. And maybe even now, when the Lord asked him that question, maybe even now he was thinking of how he had just done it again, tried to prove his superior agape love for the Lord by being the first one to jump out of the boat and get to him. And then hauling that heavy net full of fish from the beach over to the the fire pit to impress the Lord. But he answers using the Greek word phileo, not agape, to refer to his love. Phileo love affectionate, brotherly type of love is a good love, but it certainly isn't the supreme, sacrificial, unconditional love of God. 
So you might not see this at first, but Peter's answer shows spiritual progress. This is a good thing. Think how his answer here compares to how the pre-denial Simon Peter would have answered this question. How do you think he would have answered when Jesus said, Simon, son of Jonas, agape love me more than these? That old Peter would have said, of course I agape love you, Lord. In fact, so much so that even though everyone else in the whole world (laughs) might disappoint you and fail you, I never will. Yea, Lord, there is no doubt whatsoever that I agape love you more than these. And then he might have even gone on to say, didn't I risk my life by walking on a stormy sea to get to you first? Didn't, wasn't I the only one who came to your defense in Gethsemane? And didn't I just get to you first when I jumped out of the boat to come to you when we recognized you from the, you know, on the shore? So you see the difference? This is showing spiritual progress in Peter when he responds, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I phileo love you. That shows growth in humility, and it also shows some growth in wisdom. He's leaving it up to the Lord to read his heart. He finally realizes that Jesus knows Peter better than Peter knows Peter. And he wisely surrenders to the Lord's omniscience. You know, he's, he's making a statement that the Lord is omniscient, that he can read his heart, okay? And he's surrendering to that omniscience. Not like before, when Jesus said, you'll deny me, I know. You know, when Jesus said, I must die, oh no, Lord, you know. Now he's finally surrendering to his omniscience, to his deity. Yet I do want to point out the fact that Peter is confident in his love for the Lord. Even if he doesn't claim to have reached the highest level of love, sacrificial, unconditional love, yet he's confident about his love for the Lord because he doesn't say, thou knowest whether or not I love thee. He said, you know, I love thee. That's good. And notice this too. He wisely omits any comparative love statement in his response to that more than these part of the Lord's question. All in all, this is a good response. He's not bragging that he has agape love. He's, he's being humble. I mean, this is a good response because it, it demonstrates Peter's understanding of and his humble reliance on the Lord's deity. And yet, there is a confident, a confident devotion to him expressed, yet with an understanding of his own weakness. So he's progressing. Now, I want to proceed, first of all, by looking at the Lord's next two questions to Peter and Peter's response before I then talk about the assignments, the, the commission that Jesus gives to Peter. Okay, because it gets confusing. So let's look at the questions and the answers, and then we'll go back and look at the three commission assignments that he's given. In verse 16, Peter, Jesus asked Peter about his agape love for him a second time. He says, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? And again, he uses the word agape. Instead of asking Peter here, to state his love comparatively more than these, the Lord now just asks him to state his love, period. Do you agape love me? And again, 
Peter responds by appealing to the Lord's omniscience. And he also responds by using not the word agape, but the word phileo. Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I phileo love thee. And then in verse 17, the Lord's third question to Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Which looks in English exactly the same as his verse 16 question. Doesn't the second and third question look exactly the same in English? It's not. We find that the Lord switched to using, in the third question, he switches to using Peter's word for love, phileo. And that makes the question, the third question, even more probing. Because he's essentially saying here, Simon, do you even phileo love me? With affectionate, brotherly type love. Now John, who was a first-hand witness of all this, he tells us that Peter grieved. John could see it in Peter's countenance. The others would have seen it in Peter's face. You see, the Lord had stirred up that grief in Peter intentionally. In the probing of that third question, Peter would have realized that his denials of the Lord certainly had not even evidenced affectionate brotherly type love. If he loved the Lord as a brother, would he have denied any relationship with him whatsoever and thrown in a few curses too? He didn't agape love him unconditionally, sacrificially, that's for sure. You know, even though he said he was willing to die with him, he ran. And when he denied him, that's not even really showing phileotype love. And all of a sudden, in his mind, surely he realized how sudden, you know, suddenly realized how his boasts of undenying devotion were so hollow and shallow. All those bragging statements he had made, so shallow when he looked back and thought about it. So this probing was humbling, especially it was done in the presence of others. It was humbling. And Peter was broken. That's a good thing. That's a good thing when a proud person is broken. The Lord will sometimes do this to us. He will keep probing and he will keep humbling us, even perhaps in the presence of others, until our hearts are moved sufficiently. Peter's Grief. Think about this. Peter's grief at the Lord's third question really kind of parallels his bitter weeping following his third denial of the Lord, which the others had not witnessed. Remember when Peter denied the Lord for the third time, heard the rooster crow and turned, whose eyes were looking at him? Jesus's eye contact, and he realized what he had just done, and it says he went out and wept bitterly. Now at this third question that really probed his heart, he again grieves bitterly. This is good, because it's giving evidence in front of the others who had not seen his first grieving This is giving them evidence of Peter's genuine repentance. 
And maybe Peter realized that if he was so grieved to be asked by the Lord God Almighty of heaven and earth, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Three times. And he's grieved over that? What did he think the Lord felt when he denied him three times? So maybe he's beginning to see things in the eyes of others, especially his Lord. And then he goes on to make the strongest statement of the Lord's deity, his omniscience, his all-encompassing searching knowledge upon which he now is submitting himself. Peter says, Lord, not just you know my heart, but what? Thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I phileo love thee. You see, the probing had succeeded in getting Peter to search himself to see how weak he really was. Our great physician knows that if we really are going to be healed spiritually, we have to admit we're sick, right? We have to know that. We have to know our utter dependence on him. His strength is made perfect in our weakness, but it's critical that we first realize our weakness so that we can then rely on his strength in our weakness. In the Lord's question, I hope you realize, in his three questions, I hope you realize that he never once denied Peter's love for him. He never denied his love. He was in the process of recommissioning a man who he knew with his omniscient knowledge was a devoted disciple. He knew Peter loved him. He would not have been doing this in the first place if he didn't know that Peter's love was genuine. All of this was for Peter's own good. It was for Peter's benefit. It was to reinstate him before the others. They needed to know that he was being reinstated. And the Lord was graciously providing Peter uh, the opportunity to reverse his failure. How many times had he failed? How many times had he denied the Lord? Three times. The Lord is giving him three opportunities to reverse that failure and say that he loved him. Without this conversation and the one that's going to follow this, Peter himself, in the years to come, may have wondered if he would ever be allowed to serve the Lord again after what he had done. It's like, you know, when the Jews were taken into captivity, into Babylon, and Nebuchadnezzar made them bow before him. There were only three that wouldn't bow before him, right? What did the rest of the Jews do? They denied the Lord God when they bowed down. That's really what Peter did. He denied the Lord. So he might think, I'm such a failure, I can never serve the Lord again. Do a lot of people think that? But isn't he the God of the second chance? Third, fourth, <laughs> I don't know what number I'm on. I mean, it's way up there. And maybe if Peter, had, if Peter himself had tried to serve the Lord, maybe the other guys would have said, nope, you're finished with Peter. He can't use you. You know what you did. So this conversation is very, very important. Peter was graciously also assigned ministry responsibilities in response to each of his humble appeals to the Lord's omniscient knowledge of his love and his heart. The Lord didn't do what I'm doing. I waited till the end to tell you the commission commands, okay? But the Lord, after each confession from Peter that he loved him, didn't wait till the end before he began to commission him, assign him Christian leadership responsibilities. Now, although this conversation is spoken 
directly to Peter. The commissions that he has given are also for the other apostles and for who else? Every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, everyone who genuinely loves him. Believers will demonstrate their love for Christ by spiritually feeding the little ones who belong to him, which was the Lord's first commission command. And it's actually given as a command. It's a commission, but it's also a command. And what is it? Feed my lambs. Lambs speak of the youngest. But you don't necessarily have to be young to be a lamb. An 80-year-old who has just come to know the Lord Jesus would also be a lamb. It speaks of the youngest, the weakest, and the spiritually immature, the ones we would call spiritual babes. The Greek word for feed in this verse is vasco. It's a word that speaks of providing food. You know, exactly what it sounds like, providing food. Except we know in this context, is he talking about Peter doing all the cooking and feeding all the lambs? No, he's speaking spiritually, of course. What is Peter to feed the lambs with? The milk and the meat of the bread of life. To to feed them with God's word. Exactly. Did you notice how easily the imagery has changed from fish to sheep? From being fishers of men to shepherds over sheep? You know, it's interesting. I thought about it. We're not only to be shepherds, we are the sheep. (laughs) And originally we were the fish. And then we became the fishermen. (laughs) The analogies in scripture just go on and on. Well, in verses 16 and 17, the Lord extended his commission to Peter by then saying, feed my sheep. And the word sheep is inclusive, really, of the entire flock. In addition to the immature lambs, it includes the more mature believers. So when he speaks of sheep, he's speaking about his whole flock, all of his people. And again, in English, these two commissioning commands, look at the last two commissions, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. Don't they look identical, repetitive in English? They're not in the Greek. I wish you could have a Greek Bible in front of you. Of course, it would be all Greek to you, but. (laughs) In verse 16, the word for feed is poimeno. That means to shepherd, to tend to, to lead. Tend to my sheep, lead them. And in verse 17, the word for feed is vasco again, just as it was feed my lambs. Now it's feed my sheep with spiritual nutrition from the word of God. So the Lord progressively added to Peter's original assignment. Not only was he to feed the lambs, but he was also to lead and care for and tend to and feed with spiritual food the Lord's entire flock. Big responsibility, wasn't it? Did you notice through these three questions that Peter, as Peter, progressively descended down, down, down the ladder of humility, the Lord, in turn, ascended him up, up, up the ladder of leadership responsibility. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Humility 
is such a key characteristic of the Christian life. There is no place for pride in a Christian. And did you also notice that each of the Lord's three commands, verse 15, verse 16, verse 17, consisted of three words. Three commands, three words. Feed my lambs, one, two, three. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. You know, there's a lot of threes in John chapter 21. Remember in verse 14, we looked at last week, John went out of his way, his way to tell us that this was the third time Jesus had showed himself to his disciples after his resurrection. Well, if you look in verse 17, the word third is mentioned two more times. So how many times does the word third appear in John 21? Three times. The chapter contains three church-wide responsibilities. We are to be fishers of men, shepherds of sheep, and followers of Christ. There were three things that Jesus prepared for his men. Fire of coals, fish, and bread. The miraculous catch of fish consisted of how many? 153, which is a number divisible by three. The Lord probes Peter with how many questions? Three. There are three confessions from Peter of the Lord's omniscient deity. What a way for John's gospel to end with all of these threes. Because remember what John stresses about the Lord Jesus Christ? His deity. Matthew stresses the sovereign king. Mark the suffering servant. Luke, the son of man, the Messiah. John, the son of God. What a way to end with all these threes. And there's more. I'm going to have more in the rest of this lesson. But why is three important? Because three in scripture is the number of deity. One God, but three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Now, I know it's difficult for us to visualize in our English translations of the Bible But in the original Greek, think of this now, if you can, everything I've shared with you. But in the original Greek, there is only one word that is a common denominator in each of the Lord's three commands. Feed my lambs, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. But if you can think of all the Greek words I've told you, there's only one word that's a common denominator with all three of those commands. And that word is, got it, my He speaks of spiritually feeding and shepherding the lambs and the sheep who belong to him. He asked Peter about his love for him and his follow-up commission was this. Direct, Peter, direct, or Simon, Simon, direct your devotion and direct your affection for me to my flock. You say you love me, and I know that you do, because I can read your heart. So then focus on my things, the things that are the most precious to me, the things I died for. Focus on my lambs and on my sheep, my people. With the rest of your life, Peter, show your love for me by being a servant, leader, shepherd to my flock, my people. I don't think the Lord could have given Peter a more substantial proof 
of his confidence in him than he did when he committed to his care the objects of his own unconditional, sacrificial, agape love, his flock. So Peter is back into leadership, and this time with a right heart. He has been commissioned to a position of feeding, protecting, tending, and shepherding. And Peter and the other men would have understood all of this in the statements from the Lord. They all needed to hear this. Well, shockingly, the next thing that the Lord says to Peter is a prediction of the way he's going to die. So let's look at verses 18 and 19. The Lord says to Peter, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, When thou wast young, thou girdest thyself and walkest whither thou wouldest. In other words, when you were young, you had freedom. You could get yourself dressed and go wherever you wanted to. You were free. But when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands, and another shall gird thee and carry thee whither thou wouldest not. And then John tells us what the Lord meant by all of that. He says, this spake he signifying by what death Peter should glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he saith unto Peter, follow me. You know, back in verse 17, Peter had credited Jesus with knowing what? All things, right? Thou knowest all things, and immediately the Lord demonstrates the truth of that statement, that he does indeed know all things. He begins by telling Peter how he will die. Now, this was important for Peter to hear. How do I know it was important for Peter to hear? Because the Lord began that statement with, Verily, verily. And whenever the Lord says, Verily, verily, what does it mean? Pay attention. (laughs) Listen up. This is important for you to hear. By the way, this is the last verily, verily statement made by the Lord in the book of John. There were a total, counting this, of 24. 24 verily, verilies in John's gospel. Every single one of them was said by Jesus. It would be a good study to go back and look at all those verily, verilies because they're all very, very important. Everything he said was important, but these were especially important. Peter had known immense shame when he denied the Lord. He failed miserably. And it was more shameful in view of the fact that he had so brashly declared his loyalty to the death. You know, if he hadn't made all those bragging boasts, it wouldn't have been quite as bad, right? But he had said, Lord, I am ready to go with thee both into prison and to death. So you see, in time, as Peter got older and older, he might later begin to doubt himself in regard to his ability to remain faithful. Especially when he began to face some persecution, he might think, well, I wonder if I'll do it again. I thought I was so strong, but I wasn't. When it came right down to push, you know, and shove, whatever that is. I failed. And so he might begin to doubt himself. Maybe I'll fail again. But the Lord's words of verse 18 told Peter 
that he would have another opportunity. Actually, he's going to have a lot of opportunities, but in his old age to demonstrate his devotion and his unwavering commitment to the Lord. And this time he would not again deny him, even though it would mean his own death. That had to encourage Peter. That had to encourage him. It may have shocked him first, you know, when he heard it. Wouldn't it shock you if all of a sudden you got a word from the Lord how you were going to die? Hmm, be kind of frightening. But uh, over the years, I think as Peter thought back on that, that really encouraged him. Why? Because it told him that he would finish well. He would run his race to the end and he would finish well. Wouldn't you want to know that? Don't you pray for that? I pray for that, Lord, let me finish well. That would be encouraging to hear. Now, some people think that Jesus was being cruel in telling Peter ahead of time that he was going to die by way of crucifixion. And that would be understood. Anybody who heard stretching forth your hands, being girded, taken where you don't want to go, all of that spoke of crucifixion. And some people they say that's just cruel to have him with that shadow hanging over him his whole life. But I strongly disagree with that assessment because it is never, ever in the nature of God to be cruel. Do you know what cruelty is? It's unrighteous meanness. God can never be unrighteously cruel and mean. That's just not his nature. He had just commissioned Peter to feed and to shepherd his people, his sheep. And this death prediction in the next verse assures Peter that he is going to be successful in that task. You see, he's going to be so successful in feeding and shepherding and tending to the flock that the wolves are going to come after him and despise him. And it would ultimately result in a martyr's death. You know, although Peter had experienced, like I said, a rubber ball, Tigger, you know, many ups and downs in his life, bouncing ball. And don't we all? I mean, isn't that the agony of the Christian life that we're, you know, up and down, up and down? Yet, <clears throat> he, he knew because of these words that he would, fin he would race, you know, he would run the race to the finish line and he would finish well. Satan could sift him like wheat all he wanted to, but Peter's faith would not fail. Isn't that what the Lord had prayed for Peter? Don't the Lord's prayers always come true? What do you think he's doing in heaven right now? Praying for all of us that our faith will not fail. And if you truly belong to the Lord, he that began a good work in you will perform it. We will finish the race well. Peter would live about another 31 years after this. Tradition says that he died in 64 A.D. And how do you think Peter died? Exactly as the Lord had said he would. However, at Peter's own insistence, Peter was crucified upside down. Because he said he was not worthy to die the same way that the Lord had died. I think Peter, for 31 years, thought about that. He knew that he would die by way of crucifixion. And I think he thought, when it comes to that time, I am not worthy to die the way the Lord did, so hang me upside down. And they did.
cannot imagine how painful that would have been. To be crucified is one thing, but to hang upside down with all the blood rushing to your head. The only good thing I can think about it is at least you would probably die sooner. They say, tradition says that they killed Peter's wife right in front of him before he was then crucified upside down. But John, who wrote his gospel account years after Peter died, confirmed that Jesus had signified by his words to Peter there on the shore of the Sea of Galilee by what death Peter would glorify God. Do you know that Peter's death glorified God? Have, we, have you thought about your death? Well, I'm sure you have, <laughs> because there's one thing that's inevitable, two things, taxes and death, right? But have you ever, I know we live in a country, and we're so geared in our society, especially living in this country, a lot of us don't think about martyrdom, do we? I mean, maybe we're starting to as things are changing, but I think it's you know much more common for us to think as life as the only season that we have in which to glorify God. You know, how am I going to redeem my time wisely? How am I going to glorify the Lord with the life he's given to me? But death can also be a time when we have the opportunity to bring him much glory. You know, I'm going to step out and say something that's really kind of dangerous to say. But I have thought about it a lot. I remember as a very young Christian, I went to hear a woman give her testimony who had been in a prison, a Japanese prison. She was Korean. She had spent years of her life. She was an older woman. She must have weighed about 70 pounds. She was a tiny little thing. And she had to do in prison, and this was because of her faith in Jesus Christ that she was thrown in the prison. But she had to do things that, oh, I, don't, I couldn't even describe to you. They're so horrible, awful things. They just, they persecuted her in that prison. It was just horrific. But she stood before all of us and she was just glowing and said, you know, the greatest thing that I can imagine would be to be a martyr for Jesus Christ. To give to the one who gave his all for me, my all for him. And that just broke my heart. And I've always thought, you know, I could, I don't know how I'm going to die and I don't want to know. I'm glad I don't know. But I would much rather die as a martyr for the Lord Jesus Christ than just on a sickbed, you know? I really would. Because what a legacy that would leave behind for my family and my children and all of you and everybody watching and even those killing us, right? Wow. That would be, and there's a special crown for those that are martyred. And it's getting to that point. Who knows? Some of you younger. That would, be, that would be a real, real blessing to be able to be martyred for the Lord Jesus Christ and glorify him that way. That's what Peter did. How can we glorify the Lord? in our? You, you know, you cannot glorify the Lord in your death, really, if you haven't lived for him in your life. To glorify the Lord, first and foremost, you have to know him. You have to be ready for death. Do you know that the death of unsaved people. There is not one unsaved person who dies who glorifies God because they've rejected God. They've rejected his son. They, they don't glorify him. But every single saved person who dies glorifies the Lord. 
precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. We glorify God in our deaths by sharing with and showing others our confidence in our eternal destiny. Haven't you seen that in people that you've known in the past that went home to be with the Lord, knowing confidently, you know, absent from the body, present with the Lord. And some of them, I remember Mary Patterson, she couldn't wait. She said, I don't know why the Lord keeps me here. I just want to go. (laughs) And we glorify him in showing the sufficiency of his grace, even during the times of our suffering and our pain, and by testifying to others of the inner peace and the hope that we have in him which they can also have in him by trusting in him. Well, did the Apostle Peter have this kind of confidence and peace in the remaining years of his life, even though he knew in advance how he was going to die and it would be a horrible death? Yes, he had that kind of peace and confidence. He didn't live his life in fear just because he knew a cross overshadowed his whole life. Remember the time he and John were brought before the Sanhedrin council and told to shut up, don't ever preach and teach about Jesus again? And what did they say? Ought we not to obey God rather than men? Bold, not fearful at all. Um, He concentrated the rest of his life, 31 more years, he concentrated on feeding and shepherding and leading and strengthening the Lord's lambs and the Lord's sheep right to the bitter end, as he was commissioned to do. Do you want to hear Peter's words about his knowledge of his upcoming death? I can actually give them to you because he wrote them in the eternal word of God. Here's what Peter had to say about his own knowledge of his upcoming death. He said, yea, I think it proper, as long as I am in this tabernacle, this body, to stir you up by putting you in remembrance of the truths that I have given to you, knowing that shortly I must put off this tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus Christ has showed me. When did he show him? Here on the shore of Galilee. Moreover, Peter said, I will endeavor that ye may be able after my decease to have these things always in remembrance. Second Peter 1, verses 13 to 15. Where was Peter's concern in his old age, knowing that a cross was shortly before him? Where was his concern? Was it on himself? No, it was on the Lord's flock. His concern was that the Lord's flock remember everything he had taught them. Hmm. Well, quickly, what time is it? Good, okay, I'm doing okay, right? Let's look at verses 20 to 25. It says, Then Peter, turning about, seeth the disciple whom Jesus loved following. Who's that? John. Which also, he goes on to describe himself a little bit further. In case you didn't know, he was the disciple Jesus loved. He says, which also leaned on his breast at supper and had said, you know, Lord, which is he that betrayeth thee? Remember when John did that? At the Last Supper, he leaned on the Lord's breath and he says, which is the one that's going to betray you? And Jesus said, it'll be the one that dips the sop at the same time. So this is how John is describing himself. He never says his own name. He always just describes who he is. So John got up and followed Jesus and Peter. And Peter, seeing him, seeing John, saith to Jesus, Lord, and what shall this man do? Jesus saith unto him, If I will that he tarry till I come, 
What is that to thee? Follow thou me. Then went this saying abroad among the brethren that that disciple should not die. That's speaking of John. Yet Jesus said not unto him, he shall not die. But if I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? Let me stop right there. All right. Did you notice that twice in the rest of Jesus's conversation with Peter in John 21, he said to Peter, follow me. First time in verse 19. And that one was primarily a physical command. Jesus likely, you know, after he had the love questions and everything with Peter, he likely stood up because they had been eating breakfast before that. Jesus stands up and he begins to walk. And as he does, he says to Peter, follow me. So that's basically just a physical command. Follow me. It also could probably double in its meaning as, you know, Peter is going to follow Jesus in his way of death by crucifixion. But the second time the Lord says to Peter, follow me in verse 22 was with definitely a spiritual connection. Follow me as a disciple, a learner. Follow me as an apostle. And hearing that must have delighted the heart of Peter. He would have understood his full restoration. Because guess what? These are the first words. This is the first command that Peter ever heard from the Lord Jesus. And it was also after a great miraculous catch of fish. Back in Luke 5, that first miracle, when Peter, you know, fell on his knees and said, Depart from me, Lord, you know, I'm a sinful man. And then the Lord had said to him, follow me and I will make you a fisher of men. So now Peter's hearing that same command again. So he knows he's been restored. You get it? Actually, the Lord said to Peter, follow me three times. There you go. Another three. He said it the first time back in Luke five or Matthew, wherever it was. I can't remember the exact parallel passage. It might have been Matthew four nineteen. And then now here in John 21, he says it to him again. You know the last word that really Jesus ever spoke to Peter was follow me. That's the last word he ever says to him. Follow me. It was the first thing he ever said to him. Follow me. Three times he said to Peter, follow me. You know, I got to thinking about the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has told the world. And it could be summed up in three statements. You want to hear what the the Lord Jesus Christ In three short statements, each consisting of three words. (laughs) What he has to say to the whole world of men, here it is. Come to me. Learn of me. Follow thou me. That's it. In a nutshell, isn't it? All right, let's see, where am I? Follow me, follow me, follow me. Um, Now, young John, for some reason, I'm sorry to bother you so much, but could I have a Kleenex? I would love to get rid of this cold. It is driving me crazy. Thank you, thank you. For some reason, young John also stood up and followed behind Jesus and Peter, probably because these are the two many loves most in the world, right? Jesus and Peter. And he just couldn't stand being left behind. He's a young guy. So he stands up and he begins to follow them at a distance. But Peter somehow senses that John is following. So he turned around. 
Oh, dear. It's always a bad thing when you turn away from Jesus to focus on something else, right? So Peter turns around, and when he saw John, his curiosity took over. Obviously, Peter is still thinking about what the Lord had just told him about his upcoming old age death by way of crucifixion. So when he sees John, what's the first thing? Just like a child. Well, what about him? (laughs) It is. I mean, it's just, you know, he's up on the mountaintop one minute and then the next minute, down to the bottom. Isn't it a shame we have to live with these old natures the rest of our lives? So he bursts out with the question, Lord, and what shall this man do? Which means, how is he going to die? Unfortunately, instead of concerning himself with his duty to follow the Lord, Peter took his focus off of Jesus ahead of him and focused instead on a man behind him. Peter may have been restored, but his old nature was still with him. Oh me, oh my. Lifetime agony for all of us. You know, he had done something similar on three other occasions. The first time occurred after that first miraculous catch of fish. Instead of keeping his focus on Jesus, Peter, after that great catch, realizing who Jesus was, focused instead on himself. And what did he do? He sank down onto his knees and he cried out, Depart from me! That's a good thing Jesus didn't do what Peter asked him to do. Depart from me, you know. Uh, For I am a sinful man, O Lord. On another occasion, Peter was doing remarkably well until he again took his focus off of Jesus and instead focused on his circumstances. And the minute he did that, he began to sink into the stormy water. And what did he have to cry out? Lord, save me. And on the night of the Lord's arrest, Peter once again had taken his eyes off of Jesus when he saw only the enemy in front of him. And that time he sank to the bottom, deep, deep down to the very bottom when he denied having any association with Jesus at all. And now Peter has taken his eyes off Jesus before him, And he's focusing on a fellow believer behind him. You see, we can take our focus off of the Lord in so many ways. We can focus on ourselves, can't we, instead of on the Lord and say, I can't do that. Depart from me, Lord, I'm too weak. Don't ask me that. I can't. We can take our focus off of Jesus and instead be all hung up about our circumstances in this stormy world, right? And when we do that, when we're focused on the circumstances, what happens? Blah, 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 blah. (laughs) We can focus on the enemy and maybe wind up denying the Lord. We can focus even on other believers. Sometimes, you know, well, there is a natural tendency in all of us, I believe, especially as women, to know the things of others, right? Like to, yeah, metal, you know. Want to know about other people. There's also a natural tendency in the heart of men to know the future, things to come. And sometimes we are just so apt to be busy in other people's businesses, talking about other people and, and what's going on here and what's going on there, that we can neglect our own business, right? That can happen. 
The Lord's answer to Peter, if I will that he, John, tarry till I come. In other words, if it's my will that John lives until I return, what is that to thee, Peter? What is he saying? That's a rebuke, isn't it? Right away, a rebuke. Mind your own beeswax. (laughs) Mind your own business. You know, implied is tend to your duty. I've just given you a duty and I've told you to follow me. Fulfill your course and leave the future of others in my hands. That's up to me. Don't worry about what everybody else is doing. Focus on your course and what I have led you to do. And notice that John then took a verse, a whole verse, 23, to reinforce the Lord's words, if I will. Why did he do that? Well, that was to stop a rumor that was spreading in the early first century church that said John wasn't going to die until Jesus returned. That was, you know, a misunderstanding of what really went on here at the shore of Galilee. So John, in his old age, is setting the record straight by saying, he didn't say that. He said, if I will. You know, the fact is here, the Lord really didn't say whether John would live or die, did he? He said, if, if that's, you know, if it's my will that he lives till I return, that's my business. He didn't say one way or the other. The thing is that John, with his brother James, had already heard of their future. They had already heard about their future. Do you remember that? Remember when they came and even brought their mother, asking to be on the right and left-hand side of the Lord when he came into his kingdom? And he said, you don't know what you're asking for? Are you willing to drink the cup that I'm going to drink of and have the you know baptism that I'm baptized with? Meaning, are you willing to suffer and die the way... You know, I'm going to. And they had said, yea, Lord. And then he said, you will. You will. You'll drink of the cup that he had drunk of and be baptized with his baptism. Speaking of suffering, okay, suffering. That was a prediction of their own persecution and their suffering. You know, James, John's brother, was the first apostle to die. He was martyred for his faith. John, of course, was the last apostle to die. But he did indeed drink a cup of suffering. He suffered much persecution and eventually was placed on a remote island, the Isle of Patmos, in exile as an old man. Something, however, that is really interesting is that in a sense, in a sense, John did witness the Lord's return before he died. He witnessed the Lord's return through the visions he received in the spirit on the Isle of Patmos, which he recorded for us in the marvelous book of Revelation. Just read Revelation chapter 19. The Lord's return in glory. And through a vision, John did see that. Well, John concluded his glorious gospel. And if you go back and and read through these 21 chapters and remember all we have discussed and learned and all that is there and how many millions of people have come to know the Lord Jesus Christ with eternal salvation because of the book of John. Just think of John 3.16 alone. It is indeed a glorious gospel. And he concludes it with the testimony of two things. Number one in verse 24, the testimony of the fact that it is inerrant. He speaks of the inerrancy inerrancy of every single thing he has written. And then in verse 25, 
he speaks of the inexhaustible works of Christ. Let's look at those two verses. This is the disciple which testifieth of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which, if they should be written every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Amen. Do you know every one of the Gospels ends with that word? Amen. Think about John. John was one of the first two disciples to follow Jesus. He and Andrew. John was actually the Lord's first cousin. His mother, Salome, was the Lord's mother, Mary's sister. Their mothers were sisters. He was one of the three inner circle disciples with Peter and his brother James. He got to see some things that none of the others ever got to see, like the Lord on the Mount of Transfiguration. He was the only one who was with the Lord at the foot of the cross, wasn't he? The Lord's own mother was entrusted to John's care. He was the first apostle to believe in the bodily resurrection of the Lord because of those empty grave clothes. He was the last apostle to die. And by way of those Patmos visions, he was the only one to see the Lord in his returning glory. He was present at the time of the birth of the church. He greatly aided her progress. And he suffered for her cause as he also strengthened her with apostolic doctrine. And after meditating for more than half of a century on all that he had seen and all that he had heard in his lengthy and full lifetime, John vouched for the veracity of every word he had written. You can count on his gospel. It is truth. It is God-inspired. He also then went on to admit the inadequacy of human words to record all that there is to record about the wonders of the central figure of his record. Now, since John's gospel was the last of the four gospels to be written, we can rest assured that John had also read the gospel of Matthew, the gospel of Mark, and the gospel of Luke. So what he was saying, and he did use the word we, what he was saying in view of the fact that his book closed up all four Gospels, what he was saying was that the sum total of all that had been written was yet merely the fringe of the hem of the garment of the works of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, words are so inadequate to thank you for the gospel of John. Thank you for the life of John. Thank you for the life of Peter. Thank you for the 
lives of all the apostles who laid the foundation for us. Thank you for the truth of the word of God, your word, your God-breathed word that endures forever. Truth that shares with us the beauty and the wonder of your son and reveals the way of salvation for us through him. And may we, each of us, yearn for a complete yielding of ourselves to Thee. I pray, Father, that if we are not yet there in our walk with You, that we would commit to continue in Your Word as Your disciples until we genuinely have that desire to truly know You to truly know you, to come to love you with agape love, and to know the power of your resurrection in our lives. And I would ask that we would even grow to the point of wanting to know you through the fellowship of your sufferings. And we ask these things in the beautiful name of our Savior. Amen.